We're up to the letter O. My choices get fewer all the time as we see some of these letters. I can't wait till we get to Q. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we're going to do ordinances today with the letter O. I, I hope that a lot of what we say about the church ordinances will be uh, old hat to you, but maybe some of it new also, but always a good review as we think about, uh, we think about these things. Let me read to you out of our Constitution, that is the Articles of Faith in our Constitution, has this little paragraph. We believe there are two ordinances of the church, baptism by single immersion of a believer in water to picture the gospel, to profess faith, and to be obedient to Christ. We list a number of verses there, which in a few minutes I'm going to have you turn to most of these, Matthew 28 and Mark 16, also in the book, all through the book of Acts. And then secondly, it says, and the Lord's Supper. So baptism, secondly, and the Lord's Supper as a memorial of Christ's death and as fellowship individually and corporately. And we have verses there from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we're going to turn to also. So we have this uh, interesting little word called ordinances. You might have heard words like sacrament before or Eucharist, uh, depending on your background. But we as Baptists and other independents like the word ordinance much better for various reasons. Let me, uh, let me, I'm going to read a few things to you, but um, Augustus Strong was a theologian who lived 100 years ago and wrote a systematic theology as a Baptist, which in a lot of ways became kind of a standard theology that people today still quote from. And so uh, on these ordinances in out of the section of his theology, and, uh, and by the way, I know this theology pretty well because it was a textbook in seminary, and it's about this thick, and we had to read the whole thing, and it has about 18 different sizes of print. This was before the computers could change the, uh, the, the font size, but uh, many nights in seminary, I woke up with Strong's theology on my chest. <laughs> I don't know when it was I went to sleep, but I woke up that way a lot. Anyway, he said, it will be well to distinguish from one another three words, symbol, and rite, R-I-T-E, and ordinance. A symbol is the sign or visible representation of an invisible truth or idea. Secondly, a rite, R-I-T-E, is a symbol which is employed with regularity and sacred intent. And then three, an ordinance is a symbolic rite which sets forth the central truths of the Christian faith and which is of universal and personal obligation. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are rites which have become ordinances by the specific command of Christ. So we use that word ordinance in a specific way. 
Uh, it's not just something we grabbed out of the air. You might say, uh, in our worship as believers, we have a lot of symbols. We could use a lot of things as symbols. Uh, we might have a cross hanging you know, uh, here in the church or somewhere else. You might have a steeple. Those things are symbols. Uh, if we had stained glass in our church, uh, it, it might symbolize light from heaven. Sometimes even a pulpit is a symbol. Uh, as a matter of fact, in our independent churches, the fact that we have a pulpit and it's in the center of our room is itself a symbol from churches who put an altar in the center of the room and the pulpit is over to the side because they then, uh, those are sacramental type churches like a Catholic church or something where what the priest does through his work uh, you know, as mediator, that's the center of your worship and the preaching of the word is over here to the side. And so uh, Baptists and others uh, threw those things out, brought the pulpit back to the center as a symbol that preaching the word is the central thing in our churches. We don't have priests who do work for us or even pray for us. Uh, so we have those kinds of, of symbols, and we might have a lot, we might have a few, but we can use them in various ways. They're harmless in themselves. Then we have fewer rights, R-I-T-E. I was trying to think, isn't there a store or product, something dash right, R-I-T-E? What am I thinking? Huh? Made right hamburgers? Do they, do they spell it that way? Do you go there on a regular basis? <laughs> you know, if you do, it's a right. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to make it a right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, in our um, way of doing things today, we often take a word and spell it in a different way so it's catchy as an advertisement. So we might say right R-I-T-E, when we really mean R-I-G-H-T, we don't mean R-I-T-E, or it would be what we're talking about here today. Uh, you know, my wife gets on me for spelling date night N-I-T-E, so I'm guilty of it too, you know. That, that by the way, is a QT hot dog in an antique store. That's date night to us, or, you know. <laughs> we, we have a fund. <laughs> in a jar. So that's all, you know, when the pennies pile up, that's what we do. Okay. So, so uh, rights to us, to have a right in a church, might be, for example, uh, services. Almost everywhere you go, as a matter of fact, around the world, if you want to worship with believers, when are, when are you going to go find believers to worship with? Sunday morning, right? And we do it for a reason, because that's the day of the resurrection. Not that we can't worship at any other time. As a matter of fact, we have a Wednesday service. So we don't say, oh, we can't worship on Wednesday. But it's something we've made a regular thing, and it's become, uh, you know, as, as Strong says here, a symbol which is employed with regularity and sacred intent. So we have that. We have, we have an offering. Not that we have to take up an offering or, or whatever. 
but we do things on a regular basis which makes it a right. That doesn't make it an ordinance. But when we, when we narrow it down further to follow his definition, an ordinance then is a symbolic right which sets forth the central truths of the Christian faith, which is of universal and personal obligation. We only have two, and that is baptism is incumbent upon every believer who gets saved should be baptized, and secondly, every believer should take the Lord's table when it's given. So we have those two. Now, um, we don't do, you know, the, the Catholic Church has seven sacraments, and so they have added to it, plus they call it a sacrament rather than an ordinance. Well, they've added to uh, that because they take other things like last rites, R-I-T-E, like marriage and other things, and make them equal to ordinances. Do you you have to get married? No. Do you have to get baptized? Yes. Well, you don't have to. You can die without being baptized if you want. But, I mean, to be obedient, yes. You don't have to be married. So, so, but they have made those, and, and they call them sacraments because in a sacrament, grace is given, and grace is given by the church. So you, if you were worshiping in their church, you would have to go to the church and participate in this sacrament, not just an ordinance, but a sacrament whereby you give your, your presence and your time and the church gives you grace from God. And without that grace from God, you cannot live the Christian life. So they've made an ordinance a sacrament, and uh, they have uh, made other things sacraments that we wouldn't. So we don't always do that. Uh, Also, we don't do other simplistic things that other churches do, like foot washing. Now, we could do foot washing, But to us, it would either be a symbol or it would be a rite. For some of us, it's a necessity, (laughs) but we don't don't do it with any Christian intent, right? Uh, And the reason we don't, even though there's an example of it in the Scripture, but we conclude that there's no command to keep this thing on a regular basis with religious intent, like there is with baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's a little handy threefold formula that I've said it before and we often use, and that is the two ordinances that we have are, number one, instituted by Christ in the Gospels. So we can go to the life of Christ, we can find his command to do these two things. Secondly, they are practiced by the church in the book of Acts. So throughout the most of the New Testament, we can find the churches in various locations practicing, of course, baptism and and the Lord's Supper. And then thirdly, it is taught or explained in the epistles or the other books of the New Testament. So we can go to places where baptism is taught and explained. We can go to places where the Lord's Supper is. You can't do that with foot washing. Uh, So even though Christ did it by example, he did a lot of other things by example too. But he didn't include that, for say, say in the Great Commission. 
Uh, he didn't include that in, in uh, the commands. And in the book of Acts, we don't find it being practiced either, and we have no passage in the epistles where, that says, all right, when you do foot washing, here's how you must do it. But we do find that for baptism in the Lord's Supper. Or for snake handling either. I mean, you know, for a lot of churches that do foot washing also do snake handling. Uh, you can find it mentioned, but not commanded. But you, well, I guess you could say Paul practiced it once in the book of Acts, right? When he picked up that snake. Uh, actually, he didn't pick up the snake and handle it. The snake picked up him <laughs> and then dropped off. But you get the point that uh, we don't follow those. So we come down to these two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and that's what we want to talk about a little bit here. So uh, let's take baptism first and, and then the Lord's Supper uh, second. Baptism, uh, and you know, what is, what is the big difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper? What's one obvious difference between them? Somebody say. Okay. Baptism as an ordinance symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection, right? And the Lord's Supper, yeah, body and blood of Christ, we might say. All right, there's, there's a big difference in the symbolism. There's a, another difference when I tell you, when did you get baptized? When did you take the Lord's table? What's the difference between asking those two things? How many times were you baptized? Once. Yeah. And you've taken the Lord's table many times. So uh, one pictures is a symbol of salvation, which only happened once. But the other is a picture of your walk with the Lord, which happens daily. And so one is done one time, the other is done uh, many times. That's an ob those are obvious differences in this. Baptism, then, uh, usually is described with three words. The mode of it, that is, how is it done? What does it look like? The motive for it, who qualifies, why should you be baptized? And the administrator, who should be doing it? And so a lot of times when you study baptism, it's broken down into those three areas, and we'll do that real quickly. Um, A.T. Robertson also was a, a Greek scholar of 100 years ago, and uh, probably the, the greatest Greek scholar that America has ever produced, although now we have so many more tools to study languages, we can do it. But uh, he, he wrote a a Greek grammar that's called the Big Grammar, and it's big because, I'm, I'm not kidding, I'm holding up my hands this wide. It, the book is this thick. So if you owned one of those and had little boys that needed haircuts, you know, and you need some, uh, a stool under them and set them on and give them a haircut, that's a good book to have around the house because that'll put them up about, you know, six or eight inches. It is a huge book, and he wrote this he, he lived, he grew up during the Civil War days and, uh, and then lived into the 1930s, I think it was, um, and taught at Southern Seminary in Louisville. One, was one of the first professors there. So uh, he was quite a, a scholar. 
And uh, he says of baptism, and he was a Baptist, by the way. So he says, baptism symbolizes the resurrection also, parenthesis, that of Christ, the new life of the convert, and the final resurrection, end of parenthesis. It is a prophetic picture of our destiny and a flashlight proclamation of the new life in Christ. And I, I read that and said, flashlight? Did he have a flashlight? In the Civil War, did they, did they have a flashlight back then? But I think, obviously, he means more a flash of light. You know, think of an old musket that when they fired that thing, it flashed. You know, so more than a flashlight, as we think of looking around with a flashlight, he's saying a one-time flash of light that brightens everything for a moment, and then it's gone. That's what he means by it, a flashlight proclamation of the new life in Christ. It is the Christian, and I like this idea of uniform, it is the Christian uniform for the soldier, the wearing of colors for Christ. God raised Christ from the dead by his own energy. The picture looks backward and forward. Paul uses the very conception of the uniform in Galatians 3.27, as many of you as were baptized to Christ did put on Christ. The uniform is the public sign of the enlistment. So I like that. If, in other words, if you're in the army, wear the uniform. If you've been brought into Christ, then put on Christ. Uh, show him through your baptism. Now you know that I also... Forgive me for this, but I also, as a Baptist, like to retain the name Baptist for the same reason. Though not as important, we, we must be baptized. You don't, we, it, it's not uh, an absolute necessity that we have the name Baptist on our church, but our name of all denominational names, I think, strikes, hits more to the point of what a Christian believes and does than any other denominational name out there. Uh, and so just as if, if you're a believer, you ought to be baptized. You ought to put on that uniform. I think also uh, you should not be ashamed of that testimony of the testimony of Christ. <laughs> and that is the name that we bear. So I think it's a good name, and it describes us. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard me say it, say it before, I just think that denominational names are good things. And we ought to keep them rather than discard them for a number of reasons. And one is that when somebody walks in our door, he already knows a lot more about us than, than they would know if we didn't have that name on our door. And churches that don't have those kinds of names, you don't know what you're attending yet. You have to somehow kind of find out. So I think it's honest and good and upfront that a church tell you, a denomination. What does the word denomination mean? To denominate something means to name something, to identify something. And I think that's a, a good thing to do. I think I told you the story of a, we used to play volleyball and softball against an Assembly of God church out in Fort Collins, Colorado. And, and nice guys, I liked them. We, we were friends and had become friends over the year. And, uh, but they moved from their little Assembly of God church that was in town out to the bypass and changed the name to uh, Timberline Church. Didn't have, didn't have their name in it anymore. So a few years had gone by. They were out there in their big Timberline church, and 
somebody came to our church from that church, and we were talking about beliefs and churches and things, and I said, so, so you are Assembly of God. And they said, what? They had been members of that church for a long time. I said, so you're Assembly of God. I don't know what that is. I said, well, you've been a member of an Assembly of God church for years. I have? <laughs> you know, it, it was a surprise to them. And yet the church was still an assembly, uh, officially and legally and by doctrine an Assembly of God church and had been for years. So, so isn't it good to just say it up front? Just, just tell it, and, and that's good. So you know my, what do you call that? My uh, pickiness there. All right. So baptism is a, is a uniform, that, though, that we Christians all wear. And, and uh, whether you go to a Baptist church or not, as a believer, you should have been baptized. Well, we believe, as a believer, you must be baptized by immersion, right? So the mode, the first thing about baptism that we believe is that baptism is a dunking into the water and being brought back out of the water. You've heard, I hope you've heard this many times in your life. Uh, one way that we identify it that way is from the very word baptize. You know that these kinds of words, like the word baptize, is pronouncing the Greek word. It's not a translation, it's a transliteration. Uh, or some call it a transference. So if you said the word in Greek, you would say baptizo, baptizane, however you know the, the ending would be. And so when we say our English baptize, we're simply pronouncing the Greek word. So uh, for us, we take that Greek word and we say, what does that mean? And when we go back through history, when we go back to the New Testament Greek and so forth, what we find, and abundantly so, is that this word does mean to dip or immerse or plunge under. It could have been used in a simple conversational way. I think I've used, if, I, if I take my right hand and put it in my pocket, I have baptized my hand into my pocket. The word could be used that way if it weren't used in a religious way because it means to put it into something. By the way, the Greek Orthodox Church because they speak that language, still immerses their converts. As a matter of fact, they baptize babies, but they immerse them. Have you ever seen a baby be immersed? I mean, we're used to seeing babies sprinkled. But I've watched it, and they, they take a little baby, and they put his hand behind the little baby's head, put his chin down on his chest, swoosh him through the water backwards, you know, so the water's going against the back, and immerse that little baby. Because even though they're wrong to do it with babies, they are right to do it by immersion. And why? Because they're a Greek-speaking church, and they understand what that word means. And they understand that's the way you have to do it. So we can define it by, by the word. You know, there's a little historical... Um, story, true story. I have a little book called Baptists, the Only Thorough Reformers, and it was written in the early 1800s by a number of different men, but one of the chapters in there is, is on translating these kinds of words, and what was happening was in the early 1800s, there weren't a lot of mission boards for Baptist-type missionaries to go out under. So especially in the, the UK and England, you had to go out under a mission board that basically was an Anglican mission board. 
but you went out as a Baptist. So Baptists were going out as missionaries to places like Spain and France and other places. And what does a missionary do? A missionary preaches the gospel, makes converts, baptizes them, takes the scripture, translates it into their language, and teaches them the scripture. So the Baptists of those days, when they're translating the scripture to Spanish or to French, they wanted to translate that word and make it and translate it with the Spanish word for immerse or the French word for immerse, that you are to immerse those converts. The, the Church of England said, told them, as our employees, you're not allowed to translate it. You can only transfer it. So just as we have done in English where we have the word baptize rather than a translation, which would be immerse, they were only allowed to find the Spanish word or the letters and spell the word out in Spanish letters, spell the word out in French letters, spell the word out in German letters so that they weren't translating it. And why was that rule there? Because, of course, the Church of England did not immerse. <laughs> they sprinkled babies. And they didn't want their missionaries telling people in other countries that you're supposed to be immersing. <laughs> so they forbid, their, the, they forbid the missionaries to do it. And here were Baptist missionaries protesting the Church of England, saying, this isn't right. You're not letting us give them the Word of God. Because the Word of God says you must be immersed. There are lots of stories like that. You know, uh, 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 missionaries that, that uh, went to the mission field and studied the scriptures on the way and changed from being one thing to being Baptist after they got to the field because they realized they must be baptized and, uh, and follow the Lord that way. All right, uh, go with me to a, a few verses with me, if you will. In this regard, look at John 3, John chapter 3. And besides this word baptize, which, of course, this uh, baptizo that we find throughout the New Testament, we find also instances, or maybe I should say first, we, we know that the, the Bible never pictures babies being baptized. The picture isn't there. And everywhere where you have a, a picture, a story, or whatever of someone being baptized, it's never by sprinkling water on their head. Now, you could say, well, Jesus went to John, and John baptized in the Jordan or wherever. And so, have you seen pictures of the baptism of Jesus, and here's John the Baptist, and here's Jesus, and John's pouring water on his head? <laughs> so they're standing waist deep in the water, and he's pouring water on their head? Well, that's an artist's rendition. That's not necessarily what happens. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 3, verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem. What's the rest of the verse 23 says? Because there was much water there. So when you read something like that, you've got to catch that detail. In other words, they, if all you needed was to sprinkle or even to pour, you didn't need to go to Salem <laughs> where there's a lot of water. Also, go to Acts 8. Of course, you'll remember this story, right, about the Ethiopian eunuch. 
in 836 of Acts, as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. So in other words, we're going to talk about the motive in a minute. And he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to stand still. They both went down, what are the words, into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, little details that you might skip over if you're reading it, that they didn't then say, somebody bring me a canteen and pour your water out into this bowl so I can baptize him. They saw the river, they stopped the chariot, they went down into the water, baptism happened, they came up out of the water. So we would say, do you think that's sprinkling or immersion? Which does the picture lend itself more to? And we would say much more to immersion, especially since that's what the, the word means anyway. Look at Romans chapter 6, at the beginning of Romans. Shall we, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. I'm in Romans 6. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Notice, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. So how, do, how would sprinkling picture this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? But you can see very easily how an immersion in water can picture a death, a burial, and a resurrection. So when I baptize, I've always said, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Buried and raised. So our gospel, folks, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If, you, if somebody asks you, what is the gospel? You can answer, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, you may not accept it, you may not apply the gospel to yourself, but that's the gospel. And so your baptism is supposed to picture the gospel, what you believed in order to be saved. What did you have to believe? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sprinkling, then, cannot picture your gospel, cannot picture your salvation. But, death, but a picture that pictures the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, can picture your salvation, and that's what baptism is supposed to do. All right, so the mode is that. Secondly, the motive, go back uh, to Acts chapter 2. You're close to it there. The motive is salvation. In other words, this is what made Baptist Baptist. This is what turned other uh, reformers even into Baptists. You know, one of the fun things to me about reading Reformation history, and you can read like the conversion of some of the great Anabaptists or the Baptists, is that uh, like Balthazar Hubmeyer, one of my favorite names, I'm waiting for one of my kids to be named Balthazar. And as close as I got is that Aaron and Becca named their dog that, but, but not, a, not a boy. But Balthazar was a Catholic priest. And he heard preaching from the reformers, and he got saved. Okay, so now he's, he was a man who was a priest. Now he's saved, and he goes on 
sprinkling people and sprinkling babies. Well, now that he's saved, he's going to start studying the scriptures. And by his own testimony, he says, before I was saved, though I was a priest, I never studied the Bible. What I need to study the Bible for? So now that he's born again, he starts studying his Bible. So now he's, he's quit being a Catholic. He's become a reformer. But Calvin, still sprinkling babies. Luther, still sprinkling babies. Zwingli, little better, but not there yet. And so these guys that have, were Catholics now are reformers. Now they are interested and they're studying their Bible, especially their Greek New Testament. Guess what happens? They become convinced that baptism must happen to converts and they must be immersed in water. And so these, these guys then leave the reformers and they begin preaching to adults, they get them saved, and then they baptize them. Now, some of them, even though they were called Anabaptists, still sprinkled, and you should know that so, and not be shocked by it. They hadn't yet studied the Greek and become convinced of immersion. It's just that they said, you have to be saved first and then baptized, and babies haven't been saved. And here you're telling us to sprinkle babies. They haven't been saved. They need to be saved first, then I'll baptize them. So some, before they had become convinced of immersion, still sprinkled, but they sprinkled adult converts. And then later, when they understood baptism more, they, they immersed. And sadly, even the reformers persecuted those people, sometimes to the death. Many Baptists were drowned in the Rhine River and other places by reformers, not just by the Roman Catholics, by reformers for baptizing their converts and especially uh, 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 immersing their converts. One of, one of the reformers said, all of my chickens have become ducks. I forget who that was. Not just my chickens, now they're ducks. They want to be in the water all the time, you know. Okay, so the motive is salvation. Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, here's the result from the day of Pentecost when 3,000 are going to be saved. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added unto them about 3,000 sold. Who got baptized? They that gladly received the word. Who were, the, who were those? Well, they weren't infants. They were at least old enough to gladly receive the word. And so we have here at the very beginning, and by the way, then they were added unto them 3,000 souls. That's why when we talk about membership, we will always say two prerequisites for membership in a church then, salvation and baptism. Because they were saved, they were baptized, then they were added. But go, a little, go back up to Acts 8, verse 12, and here is Philip preaching first in Samaria before he met the, the Ethiopian. And, and so in, um, he, he preaches to them, and in verse 12 of Acts 8, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, what? They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed also, and he was baptized. Belief first then baptism. Then you have verse 37 of that chapter, which we've already read, where Philip says to the Ethiopian eunuch, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Can I be baptized? If you believe, 
you can be baptized and in no other way. Acts chapter 9, you have uh, Paul's conversion, Saul of Tarsus. And in verse 18, it says, you know, when, when he uh, receives his sight, immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and what? Was baptized. And then in verse 19, after not eating for three days, then he eats. I imagine that all of us, if we hadn't eaten anything for three days and then got saved and somebody said, do you want to get baptized? Or do you want to have lunch? We'd probably say, I, I'll have lunch and then I'll go get baptized. Not Paul. Baptize me now and then I'll eat. And he did. Um, chapter 16, then quickly, and I won't labor this point beyond it. We could go to a lot of verses really, but here's Lydia, that first convert in Europe, a woman, by the way, and in verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord uh, opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. In other words, she's converted. Verse 15, and when she was baptized and her household, because they heard the word too, then the story goes on. In verse 33, you have the same thing of the Philippian jailer. So remember verse 31, 30, 31, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And verse 33 says, He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And that story repeats itself throughout the book of Acts. And so we say that the only motive for being baptized is that you must believe. You must be saved first. Some of us have a testimony of when we were children making a profession of faith that we, that we later decided was not real. And even though we made a profession, I did at nine years old, and I was baptized by immersion in a church. At 11 years old, I realized I wasn't saved, that I was just doing what my sister was doing. And so I got saved, and then it took me a few years till it dawned on me, oh, then I need to be baptized again, I, you know, because I need to be baptized after I got saved. So I wasn't baptized until I was 16, even though I was saved when I was 11. So some, some of us have that kind of testimony, but because we understand this principle. Then also, let me hasten on to the third thing, the mode, the motive, and thirdly, the administrator uh, is a little harder to figure out but uh, we can say properly the local church should do the baptizing. That's proper. In the New Testament, for example, here's Philip, and he goes up there to Samaria and he baptizes. Then he baptizes the eunuch out in the desert. They, they weren't baptized in a church. Paul, though, in, in chapter 9 by the time he's saved and he's there in Damascus, there are believers. He's meeting with the believers, and no doubt he got baptized among the believers. So what we find is that the baptisms take place in the New Testament around believers and by the witness of believers. The purpose is for other believers to witness your testimony of your salvation. But must it always be by a church? Is it invalid if it's not by a church? So 
we as Baptists hang on to the fact that even in, in the Great Commission, when Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he was speaking to the early church. And then in the book of Acts, when Peter preaches and these 3,000 get baptized and then they're added to them, well, they were baptized among that church, in other words, witnessed by that church and added to that church. So we see a, a very definite pattern that baptism should be done by a church. Now, uh, does that mean that if someone was baptized, let's say, by a missionary off somewhere and there was no church around, that his baptism is invalid? Well, some would say yes, some Baptists, and some Baptists would say no. Uh, I would, I guess, lean a little more to saying no. I could say that it is improper, I wouldn't say that it's invalid. You know, hear the difference between those two things? One might be improper. In other words, in the 60s, you remember all the hippies getting people saved and rushing them out into the ocean and baptizing them? There's no church around, you know, or anything. Or some people got been baptized in their bathtub from after a Bible study or in the swimming pool or something like that. I've, I've baptized in a lot of swimming pools myself, never in a bathtub, but in a swimming pool, in a uh, horse tank <laughs> a few times. Um, but to, to me, if it's, if it's done because of salvation and done by immersion in water, even though it was apart from the church, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's invalid. I might say it's improper. I heard somebody give this illustration one time. Suppose... Uh, Suppose up on this platform we had a graduation service going on, and uh, on this uh, on this desk right here we had a lot of diplomas and, uh, and and awards. We're giving this award and this award, and so back here is a bunch of people sitting here, and and uh, we have a we have a program, and on the program. At this point, there's going to be a prayer. At this point, there's going to be a sermon. At this point, they're going to hand out awards. At this point, they're going to give diplomas and so forth. But in the middle of the program. And out of order of the program, somebody runs up to the platform, grabs this uh, award, and says, here, this belongs to you, and gives it to the person. And everybody goes, what is he doing? You know, out of order. But was the, was the uh, prize invalid? No. It did belong to that person, and that person did deserve to get it, but it was out of order. And I think that was a good illustration of what we're talking about in this case. Now, we're not talking about whether we should accept trine immersion three times forward or we should accept sprinkling or something like that. We're only talking about uh, whether it's done by the church or not. And by the way, as long as it's done by church authority, it doesn't always have to be done by the pastor either. Now, there are some Baptists, landmarkists, they call themselves, who believe that the, it has to be done by the pastor or it's not valid. I would say done by church authority. Uh, so an associate could do it. A deacon could do it. Uh, a member that the church says, yes, we want him to perform the baptism could do it also. So I don't think we, there has to be a succession of ordained men back to the apostles in order to, for it to be valid baptism. By the way, neither do I believe that uh, we cannot accept a non-Baptist immersion. We can. In other words, I grew up among churches that would not do that, and some of you have also, where if somebody was saved and baptized in a Bible church, 
and they come to us as Baptist and want to join a Baptist church, but their immersion took place in a Bible church, uh, those, those churches would say, no, you have to be baptized in a Baptist church. And so we would re-baptize them. Now, I don't, I don't hold to that. I think that in that case, they are a church. I, I'm not saying that Bible churches are not churches before God. Of course they're churches, and they need to practice what they should practice before God, and most of them practice what we do. They just ought to wear the uniform. <laughs> I'll have the name. But, but they preach the gospel, people get saved, and they get baptized by immersion. I can't repeat that is my, is my point of view. I can't make it happen again. Your baptism happens once and only once, and I can't make it happen a second time. I could get you wet. I could make you submit to my authority if, I, if that's what I wanted to do, but I can't baptize you again. So we would accept that immersion even from a non-Baptist church. We're not going to accept a sprinkling at all you know, from anybody, but we would accept an immersion. All right? Uh, trying amuse, immersion. We call ours, go, go to Matthew 28, by the way, real quick. I'm, I'm out of time, and I'm not going to get to the Lord's table. Maybe I'll have to come back and finish this next week. But in, in Matthew 28 uh, and, and verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We call that triune immersion, meaning we baptize in the name of the Trinity, of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. I always say that every time I get baptized. Now, Trine, not triune, but trine would be to baptize them three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the brethren do that. There are other churches who baptize three times, sometimes three times forward even. But I say that's the wrong symbol. Our, baptize, our baptism is supposed to picture death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it took to save us. Our baptism does not picture the Trinity even though we obviously believe in the Trinity. So uh, a trine immersion of three times, I mean, the Trinity is a good doctrine, and we believe it, but that's not the symbol of baptism. So there are certain things we would insist on, you know, when, uh, uh, when we baptize, all right? Okay, we're out of time. Uh, maybe I'll come back next time. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper. We'll do, this, we'll do these ordinances and two, two things. I hate to mess up my my uh, pattern that way. But um, the Lord's Supper actually is a little easier, but we want to talk about it as a, as a memorial and why we believe it is a memorial and what we should do about it. And by the way, that'll be a week before we actually have the Lord's Supper, which is the following week. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had this morning and talking about this wonderful ordinance of baptism that we hold very precious and dear. And so teach us new things and cause us to be faithful to you in these doctrines, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.